Please stand together as we read God's Word. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code. And circumcision but the law, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let me read that last line in case you missed it. After all this tough stuff, the person who's legit, the person who's regenerated, the person who has a circumcised heart, his praise is not from man but from God. This morning I want to speak to you on this passage under the title, Hope for People Pleasers. Pray with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again, for the fact that we're here. We thank you for the fact that we can come into your word and hear your truth. We pray, God, that as we listen and as we see the, the problem of people pleasing, the hope that the people pleaser has, that we would all walk out of here with this one line true of us, that our praise is not from man, but from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Noel Coward, he was a famous playwright many years ago, decided to play a prank. Noel sent an identical note to 20 of London's most famous people. And the note simply read this. Everyone knows what you've done. 
If I were you, I would leave town. The next morning, all 20 left town. It was a prank. But it's eye-opening. It's sort of that I know that you know that we know what you think you only know. But I know it. And you know it. Right? It's that guilt within. It's that guilt that nobody sees. You know, maybe I'll try that some Sunday. I'll just write a note, identical note to all of us, and see how many people come to church on Sunday. Everybody left. Romans 1 and 2 is basically making this point. Romans 1 and 2 is basically saying that you know that I know that we know that God knows that you're guilty. Even if you have never heard the name of Jesus, even if you've never had a Bible, what Romans 1 and 2 is telling us is really fascinating. It's saying that we all know that we're guilty before God. The, the main theme of Romans 1 and 2 is it's not just to say, he's not just saying everybody everywhere is guilty before God. He's saying everybody everywhere knows they're guilty before God. That's the point of Romans 1 and 2. Now, Paul isn't saying all of this to leave us in our guilt. If he was, then we would call this bad news. But Paul claims to be about good news. You see, the point for Paul is to not lead us to some kind of guilt that we never know about, knew about. He's, he's simply wanting us to see and to acknowledge the guilt we already know exists. I was just talking to a young man yesterday. We were talking about stealing. And, and uh, he was talking about, what if you don't feel bad about stealing? And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, I don't have to prove to you that you're guilty before God for stealing. You already know you are. And he just kind of smiled at me and said, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's Romans 1 and 2. And I said that only because we've been studying Romans 1 and 2. It's fresh on my mind. Right? Well, now, as Paul finishes Romans 1 and 2, verses 17 through 29, he's keeping the same theme. Now he's turning directly to, we could say, the religious types. Uh, in particular, he's turning to, in his own context, the Jews. But what we see in the very last line is that their problem is that they are people pleasers. They're living for the praise of man, not for the praise of God. Now you might ask, how is this connected to this whole guilt within sort of thing, right? Well, you know, if you remember last week's sermon, if you were here, the last couple verses, Paul talks about the voices of condemnation that we all know we have. Now the gospel leads us to Christ and Jesus silences the voices of condemnation that are against us. You know, the, 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 your conscience speaks out against you. The, uh, the knowledge of morality speaks out against you. Your memories speak out against you. And Jesus steps in the way of his blood-bought children. And he says, silence! Yeah. Silence! Jesus speaks a better word. 
leads us to the cross where the burdens of my heart are rolled away. Are you guys with me? That was like a yes moment right there. But, but listen, if, if we don't, uh, if Jesus doesn't silence the voices for us, if we don't turn to Christ in the gospel, and we are left with internal voices of condemnation, um, one of the options, which is the next and final section here in chapter 2, one of the options for us to turn to is people-pleasing. To try to get the approval from man because we know that we're not getting it from God. And so I want to present hope this morning for the people pleaser. Are there any people pleasers in the room? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I think we all struggle with this. But but, but, but it's a serious problem, all right? To, to say that we all struggle with this doesn't necessarily mean that we are all truly people pleasers. Yeah, I mean, if we were truly people pleasers, then we are getting praise from man and not from God. Y- you with me? Yeah. So, because it's such a serious thing, I want to give you 10 points today, all right? 10-point sermon. Uh, the first five, I want to present... The problems, five problems I see in this text of people-pleasing. And then I want to look at verse 29, and I want to show you five tips, if you would. Five changes which give hope to former people-pleasers. Are you with me? So let's just dive in. The first five right here. The five problems of people pleasing. Paul starts off referencing the Jews. He's turning particularly now to the Jews. Now, if you're not Jewish, don't just write this off and say, well, Paul doesn't mean to address me. Uh, This is as much for me and you as it would be for somebody who is ethnically Jewish. Why? This passage is for anybody who has a tendency to condemn others for the very things that we do. A tendency to want to look like we're a teacher when we don't actually listen to our own teaching. And this is, I think, really relevant for today. We have a lot of teachers and preachers, don't we? We have a lot of people who like to say, to I don't know, condemn the bad people out there without ever thinking about how this might apply to me. And to you, you know, it's really easy to preach against the people that are not in this room. You know, so there's a tendency in which we all could fall into this. Anybody who might focus on external displays of religion, which make man proud of us, while missing the heart, while missing the internal reality of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. And by the way, in verse 29, I'll say this briefly and we're going to hit on it more later. In verse 29, he says that these Jews, these ethnic Jews, are not really Jewish. Like, this is radical stuff here. He's saying you're not really Jewish. 
You're not a Jew. His praise, he says, is from man, not from God. And God's people receive praise from God, not from man. Do we receive praise from God or man? You know, we could turn it around. We could just simply say this, that the problem of the people pleaser is that we receive praise from man and not from God, right? Well, we're going to get into all of this. Let me jump in. Number one, first problem. First problem of people pleasing. People pleasing focuses on a label, a title. He, he starts off in chapter 2, verse 17, and he says, but if you call yourself a Jew. Everybody say, call. 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 If you call yourself as if, as if you're not really. This is interesting. Because they are ethnic Jews. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, meaning they have this well-recognized label, They have this brand that everybody knows about that looks really good, and they call themselves this label, this brand. But verse 28, they're not truly a Jew. We'll get into that. Labels. Labels are powerful. Brands are powerful. We could insert any one of our modern day Religious brands. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself an evangelical, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, if you call yourself a disciple, these brands all have power, right? This is why most people still today, especially 50 years ago, but even still today, the majority of Americans, when asked to check a box of religion, they check Christian. Well, does that mean that everybody's actually a Christian? You know, if 60% of America, I don't know what the current stat is, but let's just say 60% claims to be, is 60% a Christian? Probably not. It would be awesome if it was true, but probably not. It's because there's a sense of acceptance there. There's a sense of familiarity there, right? It's why certain presidential candidates all of a sudden become evangelical when they're going to be trying to get some votes. It's because there is a a, a power attached and associated to that particular label. So he's saying if you call yourself an evangelical, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a Jew... Now, for the Jews, this label actually means something, all right? It does mean that they have had certain privileges. Look at the privileges he talks about in verses 17 and 18. In uh, verse 17, you rely on the law. You boast in God. You know His will. Verse 18, you approve what is excellent. Verse 18, they've been instructed from the law. Verse 18. So this, this label that they've embraced is a whole community that they've embraced. And as a result of being a part of that community, they have certain kinds of privileges. But they are focusing on the label. What they call themselves. Secondly, 
people pleasers, people pleasing, leads to a false ministry. It leads to a false ministry. So this person that he's referring to here has the label, has the privileges, and they understand themselves to be a helper to humanity. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, And if you are sure that you you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's just pause right there. Paul's not being sarcastic. I don't think Paul's saying, if you really think that you're a teacher, oh, so you really think that you're helpful to humanity. Paul is, is, is speaking to something that is very core to their understanding of what it means to be Jews. You know, going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, Israel was called a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish nation was to exist, Israel exists as teachers to the pagans, as the light to the Gentiles, to those outside of the law, to those who have never known God. And so he's actually referencing something here that's very Jewish to the core, saying, I think in a very sincere way, that you think that you are a helper. You, you, you're exalted for these things. You, you, you've been volunteering. You're, you're tutoring kids. You're, you're teaching others. And church, in the same way, are, are not we, as Christians, also the light to the, of the world? Jesus himself calls us that. So we, the people of God, are to be the instructors of fools. Fool in the best sense of the word. It's not derogatory. It's saying that they don't know. They're ignorant. They don't know God. We're we're seeking to bring light where there is darkness. To bring enlightenment where there is no knowledge. To bring a sharp mind, a renewed mind, where there are only dull minds, spiritually speaking. So this very much so applies to us. But, there's like this this big but right here. Between verse 20 and 21. And this leads me to my third problem with people pleasing. People pleasing leads to a false morality. So there's a ministry that seems to be taking place. They're doing things, but it's only external. You see the problem. There's a false morality here. They they don't listen to their own teaching. They they condemn others for the very things that they are doing themselves. Look with me at verse 21. He says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So this man that he's referring to loves the label. He loves being a teacher. He loves serving people. Why? It's because it brings them praise from man. And so they've built for themselves a ministry. But it's a false ministry. You know, this is the kind of person who has, you know, all of the the, the right lighting in their Instagram videos, they got the right swag, they got the right look, 
which by the way, you know you can be like a Christian influencer today if you just get those three ingredients right. They know how to get likes. They know how to get shares. But what he's saying is, is that there's nothing underneath the surface. Who are you accountable to? What church are you a member of? Where do you belong? Where, where, who are you walking with? Who really knows anything about your life? Like I think social media today only exasperates the problem that Paul's referring here. Because it's so easy to look a certain way on social media, but to be two inches deep. Nothing under the surface. You know what I'm saying? It's like the difference between Easter coming up, cracking into a nice Cadbury bunny egg, and there's like all this gooey stuff on the inside, like the outside is not even the best part, versus a a, a little plastic egg that you get that you break open and they didn't even put candy on the inside. Nothing there. It looks good. It looks nice. Paul is calling us to integrity. He's calling the Jews to holiness. To be people who are legit. To be people who are real. A real ministry. Not something fraudulent. Not something shallow. He he actually is walking right down the uh, uh, Ten Commandments. He says... You you say, do not steal. Do you steal? That's the eighth commandment. Do not steal, right? And he's saying, you're you're preaching this eighth commandment. You're telling people, hey, don't steal. But all the while, you're stealing honor from God as as pride puffeth. You like that King James language right there? (laughs) You're stealing money from a friend while you're acting like you love your friend. You're, you're, you're stealing time from an employer who thinks that you're working. I don't, all of these subtle sort of ways in which we're not actually people of integrity, he's saying. He goes down the list, the seventh commandment. He says, you, you, you say not to commit adultery, yet do you commit adultery? It's like the pastor who some years ago I referenced who was slamming homosexuality while privately, secretly getting together with a homosexual prostitute. You know, it's like, it's like the, the friend who's concerned for her friend who's in adultery and speaking to her and, and trying to teach her and trying to help her out of an adulterous relationship and all the while she's fantasizing about another man who she's not married to. Are we, are we real, he's, he's asking us. Is there legitimacy here? Or do we have a false ministry? You know, this last week, news spread of another Christian leader resigning in shame. It's, it, it's so easy, church, to, uh, to praise the pulpit, all right? I'm saying this because I'm standing in a pulpit, or whatever you call this, and uh, so I'm saying this with, with humility. It's easy to praise the pulpit, while not calling the pulpit to integrity. And I'm convinced this is the reason this is so broad in, in, in our world today of Christianity. This is such a broad problem. We see one Christian leader after another dropping like flies. I'm convinced this is the reason. It's 
because the pulpit is not held accountable by the pew because the pew is doing the same thing. The pew isn't going to call out their pastor for being a fraud when they're a fraud. When they're participating in the same sort of sins against the holy God. We have a problem in the church. Uh, not, not necessarily this church. I think it could affect us, but I'm talking about broadly speaking across churches in America and beyond where we're not really caring about sin. We're not really caring about holiness. And so, of course, pastors are going to get away with being abusive because the pew is abusive. Of course, pastors are going to get away with adultery because adultery is happening in the pews. Church, we have to be holy. We have to be holy. Now, this, this leads us to my fourth point, and that is if we have a false ministry, we then have a false witness. People-pleasing leads to a false witness for God. False morality leads to having a false testimony. I mean, you can claim to love God, but people examine our lives. Does it look like it? Well, let's continue through the text here, verse 23 and verse 24. He makes this point. He says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Like, bro, that's tough. That's hard. He's saying unbelievers are blaspheming God's name because of you. And the you here is written to the person, not to every listener everywhere. He's not assuming that they are people pleasers. It's written to the person who is seeking the praise of man and not the praise of God. They're an inch deep. There's nothing there. They're shallow. They have a false ministry. They have a false morality. And that has led to a false witness, which now leads the world to blaspheme the name of God. Let me see if I can kind of turn this and dip this into culture, uh, language that we might use today to make a, a broader point. Verses 17 through 24 in modern-day vernacular. If you call yourself a Christian and rely on the Bible and claim Jesus, and you know what God wants, and you actually know how to recommend a Jackie Hill Perry book or an R.C. Sproul book, because you've had really good teaching, and you believe that you're a guide to people who don't know Jesus, a light to those in darkness, helping untrained people come to truth, You've even taught kids Sunday school classes. You actually have a whole Bible, all 66 books of God's revealed truth. But then you who teach others don't seem to be teaching yourselves. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you encourage a friend to not commit adultery, do you practice lust? You claim to hate idols, but do you elevate something over than God? You who boast in the law dishonor God. By breaking the law. For as it is written, God's reputation is being mocked among unbelievers because of you. Man, how, how true this is 
for our world today, isn't it? You know, recently because of a certain scandal in Christianity, I just saw this morning, I was on Facebook, and, and Discovery Plus has a documentary coming out about this particular scandal. I mean, what is this? This is, a, this is a modern day living out some of this stuff. Unbelievers. Mocking God. Yeah. Blaspheming God. Because of people-pleasing ministers. Because of people-pleasing Christians. Because of people-pleasing churches. You've got people today who are resigning from Christianity. Now, some of that might be for, for, for reasons that are, are, are goofy, but other times... It's legit, like there's been abuse that has been tolerated. There's been adultery that has been tolerated. And they're like, I'm fed up with this. I'm leaving Christianity. Well, does, does the people-pleasing, false, fake minister, does that in some way justify somebody to blaspheme God and to leave Christianity? Of course not. Of course not. But it is a living out of all of this stuff, isn't it? seeing it played out before our eyes on social media and in the news and even with some of your friends. The Gentiles, he says, blaspheme God because of the way these, these folks are, 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 are shallow, just living for the applause of, of, of people. Now I'm also convinced, church, that this grieves you as it grieves me. I know it does. I know it does. I am so thankful for the way that this grieves you. I've had so many conversations with people in this very church, looking at some of you now who, who have lamented to me just so, some of the, the, the shallowness, some of the fakeness, if that's a word, of, of so much that goes on in the name of Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, but we live like we grieve this together, church. Grief is the right response. Lament is the right response. And I think also a right response is personal examination. Is there any way, search me, oh God, is there any way in which I might be leaning in this direction? And number five, uh, fifth problem of people-pleasing. People-pleasing leads to a false confidence. Verses 25 through 29. So the false confidence for the Jew here was this issue of circumcision. Uh, circumcision, this might be weird if, you're, uh, if you are new to Christianity or Judeo-Christian religions, but circumcision was a literal sign of cutting away. All right? Cutting away. Everybody say, cutting away. Cutting. Holiness in its original understanding, meaning of the word, is to cut off from. It's to be cut away. So, for example, if God were to declare this piece of ground holy, what he's saying is, is that this piece of ground is cut off from the rest of land, and this piece of ground is holy ground. Now, it's all symbolic. Like, ground is not actually sacred. Well, it becomes sacred as God calls it sacred, but its sacredness is in what it symbolizes. It's not in the shadow, it's in the thing, all right? Yeah. Well, who is holy? Yeah. It's not ground or a utensil or a building, it's God, right? Are you with me? Yeah. 
God is the one who is separated. He's cut off from. He's, he is the holy, holy, holy one. And, and the shadows all pointed to Christ. And we see the manifestation of God's holiness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now circumcision for the Jews was a symbol, a cutting away of a symbol that marked them as a people separated by God to be what? Come on. Holy, thank you. The Jews in Paul's day were taking their confidence in the symbol as opposed to the one who the symbol pointed them toward. Are you with me? So they have a false confidence. They love the fact that they are circumcised. You can read ancient Jewish literature and you can see that they saw their circumcision as a sign that they were more sexually pure than the Gentile pagans around them. Why? Because they were actually more sexually pure? No, simply because they were circumcised. They took confidence in an external sign. And we might do the same thing today. You know, for us, Baptism in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, baptism is the sign that we are washed from our sins, that we've died with Christ, we're raised to the newness of life, and that we are brought into the family of God. But is it possible that one could, in a desire to make man proud, take upon the sign disconnected from genuine faith, and have a false confidence. Yeah. Have our hope in what we look like. Our external displays of religiosity. Yeah. Taking our hope in circumcision. Taking our hope in church membership. Taking our hope in baptism. Or whatever you might take your hope in externally. Now baptism, disconnected from faith, is absolutely nothing. It's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is why if somebody was baptized prior to their conversion, uh, I'll, I'll usually say, just use the word dunked. Just say dunked. We don't rebaptize at the Garden Church. You were just dunked. You got wet. It was like going into a tub in front of a lot of people. That was kind of strange because it was disconnected from faith. Baptism, by the way, it would be the weird, I'm going on a little tangent here, baptism would be so weird if it wasn't connected with faith. I don't want to get wet in front of all these people. What am I doing? But people do it. Why? People please him. See the problem there. So let's look at it. And we're going to close here soon. Verse 25 through 28. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Well, wait a second. I'm still circumcised. Paul's saying, No, you're, you're not. Don't try to prove it. <laughs> I'm just saying you're not. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will, his, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Well, help me understand this, Paul. This sounds strange. He says, then he who is uh, physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, he will condemn you who have the written code and physical circumcision he's referring to here, but break the law. Meaning, the person who doesn't have the sign placed on them, yet they are following God, they're more of a more moral person than this person is, he's saying that they're, they're putting you to shame. They're proving 
by their morality that your symbol is nothing. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Why? It's a matter of what it points toward. It is our faith. Let me put it this way, as people pleasers. Don't present something externally which we don't have the uh, uh, inward bank account ability to be able to deliver. Don't just simply present the external to get the praise of man, a.k.a. people-pleasing, without the internal reality. If I could use my own people-pleasing as an example. Some time ago, a fellow pastor asked me if I could go out uh, uh, to a restaurant with him for, me, uh, for him to be able to pick my brain, which I think is the strangest term, by the way. I don't want anybody picking my brain. But he chose the restaurant, and he, he, he chose the date, and he said, I want to take you out to this restaurant. I said, sounds good. You're going to pay for my food? You can pick my brain all you want. So we sat down. You guys know me if you've ever been out to a restaurant with me. I'm, a, I'm cheap, all right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm going to look at the menu. I'm gonna, if there's something for $6.95 on the menu, that's what I'm going to get, and a water, um, and an 18% tip. Now, I might, I actually, sometimes I'll be generous with the tip, but that's a little different. I'm just trying to people please right now and get a little, little something from you. So anyway, we sit down to eat, and, uh, and I notice he, he orders like one of the most expensive things on the menu. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so I go ahead and do the same thing. And uh, we eat, we, he picks my brain, and then uh, we finish, and the, the waitress brings our bill to the table, and she sets it on the table. You know how they do this. And so we sit there for a, for a moment, just kind of a, you know, just one of those awkward moments. And then he kind of looks at the bill and he goes for his wallet. But you know what I do? I got it, bro. It's, it's fine. I know, I know he's got the bill. I know he's going to, he wanted to meet with me. He wanted, he, you know, he led the way. He wants to pick me. I know he's got the bill. And as I'm pulling out my card, he says, oh, Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm like, so yeah, did you want to, uh, spl- <laughs> here's my point. In my people pleasing, I presented something that my bank account was unwilling to pay. Are you with me? Are we legit? Do we really love, or are we just presenting that we love? You know, are we really generous? Yeah. Or am I just presenting in the moment yeah. to be generous? So what's the hope for people pleasers? Well, look at verse 29. And by the way, let me just say this, using my analogy. If we don't get this straightened out, we will end up despising the very people we claim to love. Right? Yeah. Because we don't really want to deliver. Yeah. 
We'll be like uh, uh, Frederick the Great who said, the more I hang out with people, the more I love my dog. Why? It's because, it's because people, look, people are wonderful. Human beings are made in the image of God. They're fascinating. Every, every single one of them. There's people in this church who you find to be a little dull in conversation. And when you get to heaven, you're going to be in a conversation with them for a thousand years and find out, wow, this person is fascinating. You just never saw it here on earth. People are wonderful, but they make terrible gods. And if we try to make a person a god, and we try to live for their accolades, really it's because our ego is our own god, and we try to get from them for us, we will despise them and cast them to, this, to the side. So we can't do that, all right? So what's the hope for people pleasers? Look at verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Everybody say, matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Say that. Not by the letter. Uh, 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 his, his praise is not from man, but from God. So here's our call, family. Stop trying to please man, but live to please God. Five quick changes and I'm done. Number one, develop a true hatred for sin. Develop in your being a true hatred for sin. Now this might seem irrelevant to people pleasing, but I think it's very relevant and Paul connects these two. You see, people pleasers don't really hate sin, People pleasers only hate the kinds of sin that make them look bad. And I think in our therapeutic culture, we have minimized sin. And it's easier and easier to live a life of unrepentant, ongoing sin as long as you can continue to people please. And so here's, here's a tip. A few months ago, uh, in my men's group on Thursday mornings, uh, we had a conversation on this, same, this very topic, and, and we talked about how it can be unhelpful at times, in how we respond as Christians to confessed sin in a way that actually minimizes the gravity of, of that sin. So, for example, we talked about how, you know, in a typical men's group, ladies, you're going to get a little glimpse here, all right? In a typical men's group, accountability group, you're going to have men going around, they're going to be sharing their struggles, and somebody will say, I slipped up this week and I looked at porn. Or I messed up again and looked at porn. Now, ladies, you might confess similar things. I don't know. I'm not in your accountability groups, all right? The response is often what's unhelpful. Confession's great. The response is often, thanks for sharing, bro. And we move on. We talked about, you know, this, this in some ways unintentionally, unintentionally minimizes the weight of what was just confessed. And so as we, as we discussed it, it was suggested that a more, a, a compassionate but also sin-hating response to something like that could be something like saying this. Man confesses, I, I screwed up, looked at porn. 
Oh, brother, I'm so sorry to hear that. Thank you for confessing. Thank you for sharing that. Can we pray together that you would in this moment know the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ? Know that Christ died for that sin. Know that the judgment and the shame of that sin was placed on the Christ. Can we pray that you would live in light of the gospel, the hope that your sin is forgiven? Can we pray that you would live, according to uh, the book of Ephesians, that we would live in such a way that sexual morality is not even hinted at in our life? That we might, as Jesus instructed, go and sin no more, living in light of his grace. Now, I'm not calling us to always be ready for a little sermonette, but I, but I am saying this, is I think internally, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that sin sends us to hell? And that Jesus really took hell for us so that we might be made free? And can we love each other in a way that shows our hatred for sin and our hope in the gospel? Yeah. Let's, let's develop a true hatred for sin. But we got to keep going here. Number two, I got to be fast. Number two, take hope that Jesus died for people pleasers. How do we get over people pleasing? I want you to know this. Know that Jesus died for people pleasers. He died for the people who seek man's praise instead of God's praise. As a matter of fact, when you read the Gospels, what you'll discover is that Jesus literally died for people pleasers. He died because of people pleasers. Judas was afraid of what might happen, and so he sold him out. People pleaser. Peter was afraid of the crowd, and so he denied him. People pleaser. Pilate, i got to read this one. Pilate, Mark chapter 15, verse 15. So Pilate, listen to this, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them and handed Jesus over to be crucified. Jesus literally died because of people pleasers. And he died for people pleasers. Church, listen. You are not right before God because you get this right. You're not right before God because you walk away from seeking the praise of man. You are right before God because Jesus got it right for you on your behalf. Because Jesus sought to glorify his Father in heaven no matter what even if it took him to the cross. And when he died on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve in his own body, and he paid it for us on our behalf, rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he conquered all people-pleasing. Because I don't know anybody else who died for you and then rose from the dead on your behalf. I mean, if you can find that person and you want to praise them and you want to seek their, 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 their praise, 
Go for it. They don't exist. Jesus conquered people pleasing when he sat on the throne. And he said, I'm the one that is your Savior. I'm the one that is to be praised. Nobody else died for you. Just me. So, thirdly, thirdly, he also gives us a heart that loves him. He gives us a heart that loves him. I've got to go theological here. Verse 29 says circumcision is a matter of the heart. Well, that's weird. What does that mean? How do we have a circumcised heart? Well, Paul's not being original here. He's quoting, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse, nine, uh, verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Like the physical circumcision always pointed to the cutting away of what God is going to do in our inner being. He's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, check this out, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you might live. Meaning He gives us the ability to love Him more than others. Praise God for that, church. If you've turned to Christ, you have a circumcised heart. You've been regenerated. You've been washed You've been changed. How? How do we circumcise our heart? Well, he tells us. He says, by the Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And now listen, we need to be reminded of this. You forget this. You forget that you actually have what it takes to love God. And that's why Paul is always reminding his readers. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, for example. He's, he's reminding the church in Galatia that you belong to Christ. And that if you belong to Christ, he says, you are Abraham's seed. And you are heirs, recipients of the promise. True Jews. Circumcised hearts. Work of the Spirit. Fourth, that leads us to the fourth change, and that is to just simply know then that your account is full. If you've got Jesus, you've got transformation from the inside out, meaning you have real capacity to love God first, and as an extension of that love, to love others. Not to please others, to please God. And God alone. I'm telling you, if you are in Christ, you already have that capacity. You are an heir. Be who you are. Let's be who we are. God pleases, not man pleases. And lastly, fifth, hear God's applause, not man's. Hear God's Applause, not man. Verse 29, it says, His praise is not from man, but from God. The person who has been regenerated, they're changed. They're a new creature. They have a circumcised heart. They are the heir of, of, of all that is Christ because they are in Christ. There are people who hear the applause of God louder than they hear the applause of man. That's what they crave. That's what they want. Let me close with a quick illustration. I've been blessed, personally, to have parents, mother and a father, who have been proud of me um, they're my whole life. Like they're always, They've always told me, like, Joel, you're doing great. I'm proud of you. 
Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, after a basketball game where I didn't feel like I did well, I would get in the car, and they'd be sitting up there, driver's seat, passenger seat. I'd get in all upset, and they would say, good job. And I'd be like, I scored two points. We lost. They're like, that was a really great layup, though. We're proud of you. Look, I didn't appreciate it until I became an adult. You know, you don't appreciate stuff like that when you're kids. And as an adult, continue to just tell me that they're proud of me. I remember my dad for a, a season of my life, every time I talked to him on the phone, before we hang up, he would, he would go on this little, little, uh, little, little speech about how he's proud of me. And I, I remember putting him on speakerphone, and my wife would hear, like, every single time I talked to him, and he would always, proud of you, Joe. I'm proud of you, Joe. All right, proud of you too, Dad. <laughs> Um, it does something, I think, in a young man, doesn't it? To have, have a father, mother that's proud. Now, I also recognize this, two things. One, that that is a symbol for us of God. Yeah. All right, so I think in some ways it is a grace of God to me that I've been able to experience that and it's easier for me to believe that God is proud of me because I have a dad on earth who's pleased with me. You see? But I also recognize that that's not true of everybody. It's not always true to have a, a father on earth, a mother on earth, who's proud of you. Yeah. Mark, young man, was 15 when his dad left. And he told me that he played football, and, and the only reason he would play football is because his dad was there on the sidelines. And he could hear his father's applause over everybody else. And he, he played. His, his motivation to play the game was because his father was there. And when his dad left when he was 15, he said, I didn't want to play football anymore. I didn't even have the motivation. He was my motivation. Church, how many of you have read... Psalm 27, verse 10, which says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Let me say this, church. I don't know how your father or mother is in this world, but you have a father in heaven who has promised that as we turn to him through Christ, even as our own earthly parents might forsake you, the Lord will take you in. We have a Father who will never leave us nor forsake us because of the blood of His Son that was shed on the cross of Calvary for the forgiveness of your sin. And so we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ and we are adopted into His family. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Church, are you tired of people-pleasing? Hear your Father's applause over the applause of everybody else. Know that He will never leave the sidelines of your life. He's in the game with you. He's living with you. He's cheering you on as a father would cheer on his own child. Well, you might say, well, that sounds too good to be true. Doesn't God just look the other way of our sin and sort of reluctantly take us into heaven? No. 
The Bible says that we are in Christ. What did God the Father say of Jesus? He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And if we are in Christ and we're adopted as His sons, then that applies to us as well. He is well pleased with you because of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is all over you. The blood of Christ is all over you. The identity of Christ is all over you. And you will hear in Christ the Father say, well done, my faithful servant. The Bible says that His name is above every name. That right there is the hope for people pleasers. That there is no other name that is greater than Jesus. His name is above every other name. So therefore, His name and His fame is your delight. His presence is your delight. As the old hymn says, which I used to sing growing up, there's something about that name. What's the result of it? Well, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But there's something about that name. The name of Jesus. Oh, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full, church, in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray and let's sing. Please stand with me. Father, we thank You that we are saved by the wonder and the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank You for the grace that we have in Him. Father, we thank You for the fact that we who turn to Christ are placed into Christ, that we are then receiving all of the pleasure that You have in Him in us. You are pleased with us. God, we thank You for being with us. We thank You for sitting on the throne. We thank You for being God. The God of us. God, I pray that we would seek Your applause. Seek Your praise more than the praise of anyone else. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.